Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. KQBD Public Radio in San Francisco. I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, in the first half of the 20th century, California forcibly sterilized more than 20,000 people in state hospitals and other institutions. The victims, who were deemed, quote, feeble-minded or deviant and unfit to have children, were disproportionately young women and people of color. Now the state has agreed to pay reparations to hundreds of survivors of the 70-year eugenics campaign that ended in 1979, as well as for much more recent cases in the state's prisons. We look at this dark chapter of California history and its survivors' quest for justice. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. California forcibly sterilized 20,000 people who were deemed, quote, feeble-minded or otherwise unfit to have children under a 1909 eugenics law that remained on the books for 70 years. Among them was Mary Franco, who was just 13 years old when she was sterilized in 1934. And joining me now is Franco's niece, Stacy Cordova Diaz, great niece of Mary Franco, Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I, I know that you spent a great deal of time researching your great aunt's case. I'm wondering why your aunt was sterilized. What reason did they give in the paperwork? Uh, the reason they gave was she was labeled feeble-minded um, due to sexual deviance and was, through IQ testing, was labeled a low moron. So, yeah, pretty rough words. When you say sexual deviance, what do you mean by that? Well, it's, it's a really sad case. Um, and in my research, uh, basically, we learned um, that my aunt was being molested. And um, due to just the talk of the city and the talk of the family, they basically decided to, to remove her from the situation and they put her in an institution. And so that was Pacific Colony. At Pacific Colony, you say, where is Pacific Colony? Pacific Colony was then in an area called Spadra, California, which has now become Pomona, California. How did the decision to be placed in an institution after she was molested by a neighbor affect your aunt, Stacy Cordova Diaz? Uh, it affected her her entire life. 
um, when I interviewed her, and again, I did not know I was going to hear what I heard. Um, I interviewed her in 1997. She shared with me, um, you know, that she felt she was unworthy of, of receiving love from, you know, a man. Um, she just had a lot of issues regarding it. And it, it's just really so sad to know that she lived, I mean, almost until she died feeling this way about herself. Um, yeah, I know that you were really taken, consumed and affected by your aunt's story, in part because you believe that this is something that could have happened to you back then? Yeah, I do. Um, I didn't realize it, though, until I actually learned from Dr. Stern that this was happening and this was um, a government program. Um, but I, it, for me, it affected me because I was 15 when I had a baby. I became pregnant. And I look back and I think this could have happened to me. I could have been labeled sexually deviant for my behaviors and been sterilized. So this really affected me. This really um, hit straight to the heart. I, 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 I under, there's parts of me that, you know, I related to my aunt in many ways. Do you think it affected your decision to be, uh, to work with special ed people? You know, that actually came differently. And it's so weird how all these worlds kind of came together, but being a special education teacher, you know, I looked at the research that was behind this and my students would have had this done to them. And so it, it just blows my mind on all levels. You know, I have been a part of you know, the teams that qualify students for, for special ed programs where we've tested IQs. And although I don't test their IQ, I test their academics. And so to know that my students, because of their results, this could have happened to them back then. So it just blows my mind on so many levels um, that this was happening. Yes. And we now know that California has approved a reparations program. Relatives of victims like you are not eligible for compensation, only the victims themselves of whom many have died, uh, including your aunt. How do you view the decision to give reparations to victims? Do you think it would have provided a modicum of comfort to your aunt to know that the state was acknowledging it in this way? I think it would have. I definitely think she would have been glad to know that this was finally resolved. You know, again, when she had it done to her, she did not know that this was a part of a government program. So, you know, she, she would be so surprised at all of this, that this all happened. Um, but I know it would have been a comfort to her. I know that she would have needed it. And what do you think of it? You know, I don't think the money, you know, I'm glad that they are acknowledging this in this forum, in this way. Um, but, you know, does it bring back, you know, the fact that my aunt would never have children that she desperately wanted? Um, no, but I'm grateful that they're honoring this and that finally we're able to, this is coming to light because so many people don't know about this history. And so my goal in working on this was to inform people, teach people about this time in our, in our history. And before you go, could you tell us a little bit about Mary Franco? Tell us about your, your great aunt. My Aunt Mary was so feisty and so funny and just very full of life. I, you know, when she would come over and visit us, she was always just, always had so much fun and joke, always joking, laughing. Um, she was an amazing person. And I miss her very much. And um, I'm sad she's not here to witness this. She'd be 100 right now if she <laughs> were here today. 
Wow. Stacy Cordova Diaz, great niece of Mary Franco, who was sterilized in 1934 at the age of 13. Thank you for talking with us this morning. Thank you very much. Joining me now is Alexandra Stern, director of the Sterilization and Social Justice Lab and professor of history, American culture, and women's and gender studies at the University of Michigan. Professor Stern, really appreciate having you on. Thank you for having me. And you learned of Mary Franco's story and so many others in your years of research on this eugenics law in California. You also learned that California played a major role in the eugenics movement. Can you talk about that? Certainly. So I've both written a book that focuses primarily on the history of eugenics in California and connects it to the national and global stage. And in the context of writing that book, I came upon 19 microfilm reels, which contained the records of people, including Mary Franco and the 20, more than 20,000 others that were sterilized in the state of California. The records date from 1919 to, to 1952. I can talk more about those and what we've learned about them. But there's a lot to be told about and explored still about um, why California sterilized more than any other state in the 20th century. 32 states passed eugenic sterilization laws. California sterilized, as I mentioned, more than 20,000. That was far and beyond more than any of the other states, such as Virginia, North Carolina, or Michigan, which were in second, third, and fourth place. The eugenics law in California that allowed superintendents to sterilize inmates and patients at institutions was, as you said in your intro, um, it was on the books for 70 years, uninterrupted. It was not repealed until 1979. Um, and, um, you know, sadly, I'm so glad that the reparations bill has finally passed after several attempts to do so. You know, sadly, each year, according to our estimates in the lab, um, you know, approximately 100 survivors die. So we estimate today that in 2021, there are about 455 survivors that would still be alive and able to potentially um, uh, receive compensation, probably would be a lower number that, that does so. But there's, um, you know, I can talk more about why California and what was going on in particular in California, that it became an epicenter for eugenics, both nationally and globally, if you'd like. Yes. So I think one of the one of the key elements was that you have to understand eugenics as a racial project and a racial project of the state. And, you know, if you think about who was leading the charge when it came to eugenics in California, who was passing the laws, who, um, which um, kind of elites, it was primarily white male elites with some women involved as well, who were putting together the organizations, pushing for expanded policies. Many of them, it's kind of interesting to reflect, were Midwestern and Eastern transplants who came to California in the late 19th and early 20th century. And they viewed this as California as this Mediterranean paradise that they wanted to mold into this image of perfection. And when they looked in the mirror, they saw that image of perfection in themselves and they wanted to perpetrate it. 
And what that meant to them was it meant creating, you know, if we kind of go back to the, the 1909-1910 period when the law was passed, really their ideas were ideas of patent white supremacy, Nordic supremacy, Anglo-Saxon supremacy, and that's how they wanted to mold California. And with those ideas in mind, they began to advocate for policies and to push for a range of different practices across many different institutions that range from public health to education, um, to agriculture, um, to the environment, and so on. And I'll just give you one example because I've been talking in pretty general terms. So an example of this is David Starr Jordan, who was the first chancellor and president of Stanford University. He came from Indiana University where he had been president there. And he arrived to California and viewed it as a place where he could express his rugged masculine individualism. And moreover, where he could support policies and create organizations that would push eugenics. Um, and he had very biased and racist ideas towards Mexicans in the state and also very, um, very kind of harsh ideas about who the fit was and who, who was unfit and who was fit. And um, he worked to create the, I don't know if folks know, but the Commonwealth Club of California based in San Francisco had a eugenic section that he helped to found in the 1920s. It pushed for harsher immigration laws. He also played a role in national organizations and in uh, groups such as the Human Betterment Foundation, which was set up in Pasadena in the late 1920s and pushed for, pushed for sterilization and so on. So he's an example of the kind of person who advocated for sterilization fervently, and he did so from a place of great institutional power, being the president of a major university in California in the early 20th century. Alexander Stern, director of the Sterilization and Social Justice Lab and professor at University of Michigan. We'll have more with her and others after the break. Stay with us. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about California's reparations for survivors of state-sponsored enforced sterilization. And we're joined by Alex Stern, Director of Sterilization and Social Justice Lab and Professor of History, American Culture, and Women's and Gender Studies at the University of Michigan. Also the author of Eugenic Nation, Faults and Frontiers of Better Breeding in Modern America. And you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation if you have reactions to what you're hearing or thoughts about how California should address its history of forced sterilization. You can call us at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. 
Professor Stern, sterilizations were done on men and boys as well, but your findings are that it was mostly girls and women, and in California, tremendous racial animus towards Mexican-Americans. Can you describe how people were, quote, assessed uh, for the final determination that they are unfit to reproduce? Definitely. So one of the things to note about California sterilization law, and indeed all the sterilization laws passed in the United States in the 20th century, is that they never targeted specific racial groups in their language. So for example, if I look at California's law, those identified for sterilization were, quote, feeble-minded, habitual criminals, insane, idiots, and mental defectives, end quote. Those are the unfortunate terms that were used and that actually were included in California's 1909 law. How that played out, however, was in a context of racism and xenophobia and intense bias against particularly Mexican origin people, uh, but other immigrants and um, Asian, including Asians and what we might term ethnic whites. After I found the uh, historical documents that I discussed before, um, my team at the lab was able to crunch the numbers, so to speak, and begin to really understand these demographic patterns. And I had seen anecdotally, and I think, in fact, knowing Mary Franco's story sheds light on this, the intense animus against Mexicans in the eugenics program. We wanted to understand that from kind of a more um, systematic statistical way. So we did research that involved looking at the data set and looking at and using census records. And the upshot of it is we found that over the height of California's eugenic programs, women and girls were 14% more likely to be sterilized than their male counterparts. Male Latinos were 23% more likely to be sterilized than their non-Latino male counterparts. And the most striking number is that female Latinas were 59% more likely to be sterilized than non-Latina female patients. So the disproportionality of the program and how it affected particularly young Latinas, and we're talking about women who were girl, girls and women who were as young as 10 years old, often 15 years old, 14 years old, who would be institutionalized and then slated for sterilization. Was there any opportunity to challenge these findings that uh, a, a state official or authority would make? The law gave the superintendents a huge amount of latitude and authority in terms of making decisions about sterilization. So, for example, I, we found many cases of particularly Mexican parents who did not want their children to be sterilized. Um, occasionally, they made enough noise. Sometimes they involved the Mexican consulate. Sometimes they brought Catholic priests into, um, into negotiations. And it seems sometimes they were actually able to stave off a sterilization because of their intense activism and resistance on behalf of their children. However, superintendents had the power to override any refusals, and they did many, many times, hence arriving at the number of more than 20,000. One of the characteristics, too, of California's sterilization law was that it really was written in the language of public health protection. 
So it was, they wrote it intentionally to avoid legal immunity and to really write it, to present it as a law for the common good of all of the human race for human improvement. We know it had all these biases. And because it was couched in public health terms, they often were able to avoid issues around appeal. Now, later in the program in the late 1940s and early 1950s, there was a new director of what was called the Department of Institutions, and she began to allow for patients to appeal on their own behalf. And in fact, we have in the documents approximately 100 letters written by patients at the Patton State Hospital, basically um, describing, explaining why they did not want to be sterilized, which reasons that range from religious beliefs to wanting to have more children with their husbands once they were released and so on. But, you know, the bottom line is no, there wasn't much avenue for appeal. And it's important to remember that these sterilizations occurred in institutions that were really walled off from mainstream society. They were located in rural locations. Um, and, you know, there were thousands and thousands of patients that really were inside those walls under the control of the medical superintendents and, and the health system. Were there particular institutions that were especially notorious? Yes. In fact, it's very striking if we look at the numbers. There were two institutions in particular, the Sonoma State Hospital, which sterilized more than 5,400 people, and the Patton State Hospital in Southern California, which sterilized about the same number. Sonoma is a very important institution to understand how the label of feeble-minded, how IQ, the use of IQ tests played out in the sterilization of people with ostensibly with disabilities, poor people, um, Mexican origin people, and other immigrants. At Sonoma, there was a medical superintendent named Fred Butler, who was a very zealous proponent of sterilization and liked to boast that he himself performed more than 1,000 operations. He also made it released from the institution contingent on sterilization. So you can see the kind of conditional dynamics that were at play in terms of forcing people to be sterilized if they wanted to leave the institution. And I think it is important to note that because so many people were sterilized at Sonoma. I mean, more people were sterilized in Sonoma than most states that had these laws on the books. Um, and because their sterilization program continued on into the 50s and 60s, our lab estimates that more than half of those survivors who would be alive today <clears throat> would have been sterilized at Sonoma, generally in the age from like 14 to 18. Mm. I understand, though, that as you say, the victims were very young. What is the youngest case you had heard of? The youngest we found uh, are two seven-year-olds. It is and hard to comprehend that level of cruelty. It really is. As, as young as seven and typically many in their teens, but again, as old as 65 too. So <laughs> a wide age range there. And we know that the eugenics law was repealed in 1979. And we, however, unfortunately have learned based on reporting from the Center, Center for Investigative Reporting and the work of my next guest that forced and deceptive sterilizations continued in California prisons. 
And I want to invite Cynthia Chandler into the conversation. Cynthia Chandler is a lawyer whose work exposing sterilizations in California prisons was featured in the documentary Belly of the Beast. Cynthia Chandler, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. You know, after the state repealed its eugenics law in 1979, that was not the end. You, together with your client, Kelly Dillon, a woman who was sterilized without her consent while incarcerated at a women's facility in Chowchilla, began to realize this. Can you tell us what happened to Kelly Dillon and what you discovered together with her? Sure. So, um, I met Kelly in the early 2000s, and by that time, I had been working for about six years in collaboration with a group of activists inside California's women's prisons, looking at how conditions inside the prisons led to both premature death as well as um, loss of reproductive capacity. And, And in fact, many of the activists in prison were interested in the likeness between how prisons today were functioning in a eugenic manner like the institutions in the eugenic age where uh, removing so many women, particularly young women during the reproductive years and placing them in prison had that same effect of sterilizing women by removing them, um, again, through those reproductive years from their communities. So we were sort of looking at this issue and then I got this letter from Kelly, who I didn't know at the time. And she said, hi, you know, I was referred to you from other people in prison. They told me that you'll actually listen to me and believe me. No one's believing me. And she went on to explain how she had had a surgery and she hadn't been able to recover from it. She was having all kinds of odd, you know, symptoms afterwards. She just didn't know what happened to her body. And she kept confronting the medical personnel and was told that nothing had happened other than what she had consented to, which she thought was the removal of just one cyst from one ovary. And, um, I was reading this letter and she was a young woman. She was in her you know, early twenties. I was about 30 years old. Then we're both young women. I was reading this and I was thinking to myself, wow, the symptoms this woman is saying sounds like surgical menopause. Um, so we got her records and I read through her records and I realized I was going to have the horrific, unenviable task of having to meet Kelly for the first time and to tell her that I had learned that she had been sterilized. And it was very clear from her letter and and correspondence from that point forward that she had no knowledge whatsoever of what had been done to her. And in fact, she had tried to get knowledge. She had tried to ask over and over again and had been lied to. Um, And that meeting, obviously it's a horrific human experience to have to convey that kind of news and for her to have to hear that kind of news. You know, one of the things that made Kelly's standout is, is so strong and just incredibly courageous was she also, she not only wanted to talk about what happened to her, she wanted to talk about why it was that we were both young women, but she was a black woman in prison, having been sterilized without any knowing it and not even able to read her own records. Whereas I, as a white woman, an educated lawyer was able to read and understand more about her body than she could. Right. And that was part of the injustice as well. And so we made a pact together that day um, that we would, I would see this through with her wherever she wanted to go with it, whatever it would take to find justice. And that was the beginning of what's been a 20 year voyage for us. Um, And along the way, we found, we found another dozen women uh, like, and, and uh, people in women's prisons, some of whom were also uh, male identified 
who had been sterilized without their knowledge during unrelated abdominal surgeries. Um, and then we also, a whistleblower finally came forward to us and he told us that a program had been started of sterilizing women during labor and delivery in the women's prisons. Um, and then all told, uh, with the help of the Belly of the Beast film team, we were able to document approximately 1,400 questionable sterilizations over the last 20 years in California's women's prisons. Over the last 20 years. So that you're, you're beginning to wrap your mind around the scope of these prison sterilization programs. But I imagine you think that does not represent the number, the entire number. No, we're sure that it's more. I mean, that's also only the last 20 years. It doesn't go back further. Um, and it's only what we were able to uncover. And to a certain extent, especially with the sterilizations that occurred during unrelated abdominal surgeries, we can't, we, the ones we were able to identify were somewhat haphazard, right? Uh, so we suspect the number is much larger. And the fact that this could have gone on for so long and not been confronted uh, speaks volumes to the devaluation of the reproductive capacity of women of color and, frankly, the ability to have a future of people who are imprisoned in our state. We're talking about California's reparations for survivors of state-sponsored and forced sterilization with Cynthia Chandler, a lawyer whose work exposing sterilizations in California prisons has helped us wrap our minds around the the extent of this practice, as well as the work of Professor Alex Stern at the University of Michigan. You, our listeners, are with us, and let me go to caller Matt in Sebastopol. Hi, Matt. Hello. Can you hear me? Yes. What's on your mind? Uh, I just wanted to make a comment that back in the late 60s, early 70s, when I was a college student in Marin County, I worked with a gentleman um, in the kitchen in one of the hospitals in the area. And I'd always, sweet guy, very wonderful guy, always had asked him how come he didn't have any children in, and his wife. And then he told me the story about growing up as an orphan in um, Sonoma State Hospital and being sterilized. So mm. it was pretty, you know, pretty yeah. shocking news. <laughs> yes, Matt. Well, thank you for sharing his story. And Cynthia Chandler, you were mentioning earlier that, that you were seeing connections between the basically the theories of the eugenics movement and what was happening in prisons. The people who were carrying out or authorizing these sterilizations in the prison system, did they give what you would deem similar rationales? Yes. Uh, we had, I mean, I, I want to emphasize that... Um, there was not just one bad actor. Uh, we, we've been able to identify over a dozen different medical centers where these sterilizations took place and involving dozens of doctors, including uh, some of these, including a teaching hospital where some of these sterilizations took place at the San Diego Medical Center, the UC San Diego Medical Center. So this was really incredibly systemic. And it also, uh, was not something that shocked to the conscience of every legislator in California. And repeatedly, we heard sort of two different rationales for how this could be happening and why maybe it wasn't that bad that it was happening, at least initially. Um, one rationale was that it was, an, it was a cost-effective measure 
for dealing with the rise of children living in poverty in our state, um, that this would reduce the number of impoverished children born in California. The second rationale that we heard repeatedly, specifically we're talking about the harm this was doing to women who found themselves sterilized and were learning that they were sterilized without their knowledge, was that perhaps it was actually for their own betterment. Um, surely those women wouldn't want to have children anyway. Um, and that, that same rationale was echoed when a uh, transgender man inside California's women's prisons that we were working with who had also been sterilized, when he finally confronted the medical doctor who had sterilized him, the medical doctor's response was, well, I, I thought you would be grateful. Surely someone like you, meaning a transgender man, wouldn't want to be a parent. Um, so there was a combination of incredible paternalism, which I think echoes the public health rationale used historically with eugenics, um, as well as a cost efficacy rationale and doing basically taxpayers an incredible benefit by reducing poverty and child poverty in the state. Well, Tom writes, in Buck versus Bell, Chief Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes thundered, three generations of imbeciles in enough, is enough to justify the sterilization of Carrie Buck. She wasn't an imbecile. She got married and tried in vain to have children, only to learn the awful truth later in life. We're talking about California's history of forced sterilizations and also sterilizations in prisons over the last 20 years. And we're talking with Cynthia Chandler, a lawyer who has exposed sterilizations in California prisons, and Alex Stern, a professor at the University of Michigan and director of the Sterilization and Social Justice Lab. Also, you, our listeners, are joining us. Let us know your reactions, your thoughts, your questions. Have you or maybe someone you know been the victim of forced sterilization? How do you think California should address its history and what are your thoughts on its reparations program? Share your thoughts after the break. I'm Mina Kim. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about California's planned reparations for survivors of state-sponsored and forced sterilization. And you, our listeners, if you'd like to join the conversation, can do so at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. Email us, forum at kqed.org. And I'm joined now by Gabriela Solano. Gabriela, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate you being here. And I'm wondering if you could tell us what happened to you while you were incarcerated in Central California Women's Facility. I was um, being attended by a specialist gynecologist um, for reoccurring cysts that I kept getting on my ovaries. I had already had two surgeries prior to the botched one. the first two, they went through the belly button, removed the cyst. There was no problem. The last one, they told me that it was too big to go through the belly button. So I was going to have to have a C-section to have it removed. So that was what the surgery was going to be. They were going to remove a cyst off of my left ovary 
And so they take me out to the hospital. Um, they do the surgery. After the surgery, the doctor comes into my room to check on me and tells me that the surgery was a success, that they removed the right ovary. So as soon as he told me that, of course, I got panicked and asked him, like, what do you mean you removed the right ovary? It was supposed to be a cyst on the left side. And he quickly dismissed himself and left. I never seen him again. Um, I was in that hospital for like three days. Never seen him again after that conversation. Then I was taken to back to the prison and housed uh, in a hospital within the prison. And so my specialist doctor came to talk to me and I asked him the same thing, like, what happened? Why did they remove the ovary? And he got really defensive and told me that I was serving a life sentence anyway and uh, didn't need it. Gabriela Solano, I'm so sorry that that happened to you. So essentially by removing the right ovary, they removed your only healthy ovary, which means that you could not have children. You cannot have children. Correct. I I cannot imagine what it must feel like to know that that state officials took away your right to decide that. How, how do you process it, Gabriela? Um, uh, it took a long time. You know, I went through a depression, a phase of depression, just the simple fact that I was never going to have kids. Um, you know, uh, both my sisters have kids and I went through the pregnancy with both of them and it was a beautiful experience and I wanted to go through that and, you know, CDC robbed me of that. So it, it took a long time for me to, to accept um, but I, I ended up, I ended up getting on psych meds for depression for a little bit. And, um, thankfully I overcame that depression and, and here I am today. Can I ask you how you feel about the state's decision to offer reparations now to you others who have had to endure something like this? Uh, well, personally, I think it's hush money. Mm. I would say um, the damage is done. It's a lot of stuff going on in that prison that people don't know about. Different procedures, not only sterilization, that are unnecessary. And so for me, that money is, it doesn't repair anything. Like he, they could give all the money that they want and I'm still not going to be able to have kids. Well, Gabriela, I know that you've been willing to share your story, and I so appreciate that you've come on to do that today. But I, I must say I am sorry that you have to um, for the burden I imagine that must carry. Yeah, it does. It does. It, it's, it's, it's easier today than initially, of course, when it first happened. I was only in my 20s when it happened. You know, I'm in my late 40s now, so it's kind of I've kind of like accepted what it is. But it's been a long process. Gabriela Solano, a survivor of forced sterilization while incarcerated in Central California Women's Facility. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. And we have some thoughts from listeners coming in. Let me go to Jane in Oakland. Hi, Jane. Hi. Uh, This happened to my brother um, as a teenager in Michigan. And... uh, (laughs) quite a wild story and uh, I don't know if you want to get into the history of how this came to this how we started it in America actually and taught 
the Nazis how to do this. And um, yeah, this, uh, I think this we should get into that. Absolutely. Go ahead, Jane. Well, I don't know if I'm ready to talk about that. Oh, I'll, no, you, you certainly that. don't have to, but our guests here make that connection as well. Yeah. And uh, this was started in the late uh, 1800s. In the 1920s, it was quite there, and there was there were companies in this country who taught this, who brought the uh, Nazi scientists over here and taught them how to do this. And you know what happened with that eventually. Now, in the case of my brother, um, he was a teenager, and he was in a... Um, he was diagnosed as, you know, they call them feeble-minded and imbeciles, and uh, they sterilized him. And eventually he died there because, not from the sterilization, I believe, but someone hit him on the head, one of the other patients, and he died. And um, it, it's, it's quite a story. I mean, <laughs> this is an amazing part of our history in America, and um, pretty awful. That's yeah. all I can say. Well, Jane, I'm, I'm sorry about what happened to your brother. What was your brother's name? Well, I really don't want to get into oh, that. Oh, great. No, don't. You should not have to. I didn't know if you just wanted to. Sometimes people want to honor their um, that their sibling that way, but I completely appreciate uh, that you might not want to. But, Jane, I also, also appreciate you bringing in the fact that California had a connection to programs by the Nazis. And similarly, another listener, Viola, writes, I would like to add that this idea of euthanasia was very much, very much connects to Nazi Germany. The book Nazi Doctors by Robert J. Lifton talks about the parallels and how the justifications for sterilizations originated with the medical community in the USA. Professor Stern, as Jane and Viola bring up, can you talk about that connection, what we know about it? Yeah, most certainly. At this point, we do know a lot about it, thanks to scholarship that's been done by um, historians in both the U.S. and, and Europe. And I mean, it's the first sterilization law passed in the whole entire world was passed in Indiana in 1907. And it was a constant reference point for Nazis, the Nazi racial hygiene program, as was California's law. I mentioned before the Nordic supremacy that was part of California's eugenic program. And not surprisingly, there were tight connections between California eugenicists and German eugenicists during the Weimar and the Third Reich period. There were exchanges traveling back and forth across the Atlantic. Um, there were um, eugenics ex exhibits that were held in Northern and Southern California and a lot of patting each other on the back, believing that the sterilization laws, the 1933 law in Germany and the earlier laws in the U.S. all reinforced each other and would lead to, you know, this kind of, um, you know, idealized society in, in their view of human betterment, of course, at the cost of elimination of huge numbers of marginalized people. The Los Angeles Times, it's, it, Times itself endorsed these ideas um, with the writings of one of its columnists who wrote a, 
um, weekly column for six years. His name was Fred Hogue, and he wrote a column called Social Eugenics and regularly applauded the Nazi racial hygiene program. So I think it's important to make those connections. At the same time, one of the things I always like to take a pause on is to not invoke the Nazi connection for the purposes of sensationalizing this. Because what we have in the end is in the in California, about a dozen institutions where what happened was bureaucratized, mundane, eugenic practices. No one in those institutions knew anything necessarily that was going on in Nazi Germany or in other parts of the world. It became routinized into daily life. And I feel like it's important to Right, like when I think of the 20,000 records that we have, those are 20,000 people with 20,000 different particular individual stories. So I don't like to lose those in the context of, yes, making these important historical connections. But, um, you know, and, and one could also say, did the Nazis need California or Indiana to do this? Probably not. They could have looked to Sweden, they could have looked to Switzerland, but certainly those connections are there. Hmm. If I might jump in Please. Um, and add something. Um, so this is Cynthia Chandler again. I, I actually do feel it, that what's to me important about bringing up this connection with how the Nazi party uh, used eugenic tactics and learned from us, what to me is important is to recognize that fascist movements and white nationalist movements have used historically eugenics as part of their um, apparatus for building power. And I think for me, as someone who's worked on this issue and looking at the abuses in, in contemporary California, there was always this question of like, how could this be happening in California? How could this be happening now? Um, and the truth is, is that California heralded in mass imprisonment and heralded in the rise of the modern prison industrial complex. And there has been a strong racial and xenophobic lens in how the modern prison industrial complex has developed. And it makes some sense then that eugenics would be part of it. Um, I, I think, and I totally agree with um, Gabby Solano, who said that, you know, this remedy of, of reparations can never make survivors whole. And for certain it cannot. And I remember meeting Gabby when she first learned that she had been sterilized and this will never make up for the suffering she's endured for so many years. Um, what it can do is send a strong message that our state and hopefully other states and other countries will learn from this too, that we will not tolerate a new resurgence in eugenics, especially at a political moment where white nationalism and fascism are rising up both in the United States and abroad. Um, and to me, this is incredibly timely, incredibly timely to really look at and critique. We're talking with attorney Cynthia Chandler and Professor Alexandra Stern at the University of Michigan about California's forced sterilization program and the reparations it is seeking to disperse. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Cynthia Chandler, for those who do want to pursue that 
compensation to some extent, as Professor Stern pointed out, finding them will be hard. But can you provide us with some insight into how to qualify and so on? Absolutely. So the program only offers a two-year window for qualified individuals to apply for reparations. And so folks do need to act. Um, And there's only this two-year window. I would recommend that come January 1st, if you or a loved one you know um, believes that they were sterilized by the state of California to contact the Victim Compensation Board of California, which is the agency that will be administering this program. And their website is victims.ca.gov. Contact them for an application. We're working to design the application so it's user-friendly and one should not necessarily need a lawyer or someone to help you with the application. But do the application. Don't expect the state to necessarily notify you. We built in a notification provision for people who were uh, more recently sterilized in state prisons. Uh, But even so, if folks believe that they might have been sterilized or they had an abdominal surgery in California's prisons, I would recommend that you also comp- sorry, not- also reach out to the Victim Compensation Board and ask that your medical records be reviewed to really confirm whether you were sterilized or not um, and start that application process. And if you can, don't wait. We want to make sure as many people who qualify are able to get through this process in the short two-year window that we have. Hmm. Cynthia Chandler's work in California prisons exposing sterilizations is featured in the documentary Belly of the Beast. And Belly of the Beast is actually streaming on PBS this month to commemorate the state's approval of reparations for sterilization victims. Let me go to caller Gail in Davis. Hi, Gail. Hello there. Thank you so much for this uh, important show you're having on. Um, I, I was calling because um, my aunt was an orphan uh, in an orphanage with my mother um, back in the early 1900s. I guess it was probably around 1920s when my aunt was forced sterilized there. And um, they tried to actually uh, sterilize my mother, but she was able to refuse. And my aunt, uh, we always, my sister and I always grew up knowing that this had been a huge trauma for my aunt. And they're both, um, my mother and my aunt are both dead now. But um, I think it really had an intergenerational effect on us because, you know, I'm very suspicious of doctors myself even now, um, partly because of that. Mm. And, um, you know, they were growing up in a Jewish orphanage. I don't know if that had a connection with any kind of uh, Nazi plan or Nazi uh, uh, vision. But um, I still uh, don't really like behavioral genetics today, partly because of, of that experience, which was very traumatic for my, my aunt. She never could have children and very much wanted children. Gail, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And you bring up such an important important point. Um, Alexander Stern, I do want to ask you about this in terms of just the broader generational impact of this, just the aftermath, especially of the history that that you studied so deeply. I think the caller brings up a really important point, which is this eugenics program and sterilization program, it foreclosed so many reproductive futures so many futures of families, particularly as we've discussed, you know, families of color, um, people with disabilities and so on. And there is a great amount of palpable 
intergenerational trauma and pain and shame and secrecy that is still attached to uh, both the historic era of sterilizations that we study and the more contemporary prison sterilizations that Cynthia has worked so valiantly on. So I would say yes, and that is one of the, the challenges too in seeking out survivors, particularly from the earlier era, is that many people have buried these experiences and these histories. They're just so painful. And, um, you know, it, to, to reach out to them in a way that is respectful um, and that also can maintain their confidentiality where, where needed is, is important as well. So that is a very important psychological aspect of this entire project that we should all be mindful of as it moves forward. Yes, that's such a good point. Alexandra Stern, Director of the Sterilization and Social Justice Lab and Professor of History, American Culture, and Women's and Gender Studies at the University of Michigan, author of Eugenic Nations, Faults and Frontiers of Better Breeding in Modern America. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Cynthia Chandler, a lawyer whose work exposing sterilizations in California prisons is featured in the documentary Belly of the Beast. Cynthia Chandler, can't thank you enough as well. Thank you so much for having me here. And I also want to thank Gabriela Solano and Stacey Cordova-Diaz for sharing their stories, and also Caroline Smith and Susan Britton for producing today's segment. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.